Welcome to the first official episode of the Heathen Weirdos podcast. We are so excited that you guys are listening in today. I'm Jay. I'm Astrid. I'm Kenna. I'm Sif. I'm Theo. Today we're going to be chatting about some of the basics of inclusive heathenry, including some definitions, types of heathenry, historical and modern sources, and where to find them. All of these sources will also be linked in the description of the episode, so don't worry about that. When you're first starting out in heathen spaces, it can seem really overwhelming with all the definitions, acronyms, and random phrases. We hope that this episode can help break down that wall and make it a little bit more understandable and way less scary. So let's start with a few basic terms. Sif, you're up. Heck yeah. Okay, start off with, I'm going to be covering heathenry. Uh, We're the heathen weirdos, so it seems like a natural starting point. Essentially, heathenry is an umbrella term for most pre-Christian Germanic belief religions. You're talking Norse, Anglo-Saxon and Continental being the most prominent among them. I mean, there are other Germanic belief systems in there, specifically like Celtic, but they don't tend to go by heathen or heathenry. So, you know, that's why we say most. We also have Norse pagan, which is what you might hear some Norse heathens describing themselves as. Um, Some prefer this title as it feels more loose and personal than heathen. Uh, And they tend to prefer to get away from the term heathen as they see it as being more associated with an insult in the modern day. Sometimes you see eclectic pagans tend to lean more into Norse pagan for a label rather than heathen, which is sometimes preferred by weak-on practitioners. Moreover, it's easier to immediately get an idea of what Norse pagan is compared to, say, heathen and osatru, uh, which needs further explanation to the layperson. Norse pagan, you can pretty much say it to anybody and they kind of get a rough idea of what you practice. You also have osatru, which is a recognised religion in Iceland, and is again used as another term for Norse pagan or Norse heathen. In Iceland, the religion has a more organised structure with a hierarchy. Outside of it, the term is used to connect it to that more recognised element. In the UK, we have Asatru UK. Uh, in the US, though, it is seen as a bit of a soft dog whistle by virtue of groups such as the Asatru Folk Assembly and the like. That's not really the case in Europe, though. Further, Asatru simply means faith in the Asiya. So some drift away from it, like myself, because the literal definition doesn't really capture the essence of the practice. Uh, so, for instance, if you um, are more likely to kind of worship Jotun or the Vanya, you might not see Asatru as a true capture of what you actually worship and what your daily practice looks like. I would point out and clarify that these terms are descriptive rather than prescriptive. There's no written law, there's no dogma in terms of how you describe yourself is really personal preference on that side of things. So yeah, that's the the general three you might see more most often in this sphere. So heathen, Norse pagan, Osatru. Right, moving on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have hearth cult, which I believe I mentioned in episode zero. Your hearth cult is related to your personal home or household practice, essentially what gods or beings you work with most frequently. Even though heathenry is a polytheistic religion, that's not to say we worship all the gods all the time, that is quite literally impossible. Um, So we have a few that we worship and work with more frequently, those we offer to most, or engage in the gifting cycle, or share their values and cherish their guidance on a daily basis. So personally, my hearth cult uh, has Hel, Freya, Sif, Skarthi, Air, and the Valkyries. Uh, they make up, you know, the people and the gods, the beings that I worship most frequently. 
so saying that, I do offer to Tia, Thor and Odin and Frigg on occasion, but I wouldn't classify them as being part of my hearth cult. My ancestors in Landvitia, the Landwhites, which is also a crucial part of heathenry, uh, would be a part of my hearth cult, as I tend to invite them in into ritual frequently, and of course they're generally quite important. Now, complete humour. Um, anybody else in their head here, these are the people in my neighbourhood, in my neighbourhood, <laughs> when Sif was talking about our hearth cult, just because of the way it was said. Yep. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, these are the people in my neighbourhood. <laughs> just going through them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Then we have syncretism. Yeah, you see this more often with eclectic practitioners. At its core is the merging of practices and even deities on occasion. Um, so there's numerous examples of cultures merging their deities through syncretism. You have Persephone Isis, uh, which is naturally an example of Greek Egyptian syncretism. And Sulis Minerva being a Romano-British example that was worshipped in Bath in the UK. And Sulis was the spring goddess, like the fresh spring hot water goddess that was there. And eventually the Romans built massive baths on top of it. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> I love that thing. Yeah, you know, I've been there a few times and uh, yeah, they used like lead pipes. Brilliant Romans, genius. You know, the water was said to have healing properties. That was pretty fun. So yeah, with paganism being as individualised and personal as it is, Religious syncretism is an incredibly valid approach. It's basically whatever works for you, what feels right for you. Uh, so to get onto kind of more relevant terms, I guess, in terms of the kind of uh, the values of this podcast, um, I'm going to touch briefly on universalism versus folkism. So this um, this podcast, all the people that host it, are very universalist in approach. Uh, we believe that heathenry is an open religion. Anyone can practice it. That's very much where we stand. You don't have to be European or white. There's no secret knowledge, no initiation rites. It died out and was dead, with the exception of a few lingering traditions across Northern Europe. Folkism is the polar opposite. It is the belief that heathenry is solely for whites, Northern Europeans with Germanic blood. They believe that their blood and ancestry makes them special to the gods and distinguishes them. Naturally, yeah, we don't believe that this is the case. But yeah, so there we have it. We've got <laughs> a bit of a spiel on um, the sort of basic terms that you might have come across already through episode zero and what we'll probably be mentioning quite frequently in this episode and moving forwards. There we go. <laughs> I mean, like, does I don't even know what does everybody really use for their own labels? I'm heathen. I say Norse pagan to those that are outside of the religion and have no knowledge or basis of the framework of, you know, like paganism in general. Also true, I tend to leave way enough alone just because I think it, it muddies the waters uh, a little bit for my practice because I class myself as a heathen first and foremost. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat. Like I tend to use heathen more, but I'll use Norse pagan if I'm talking to other pagans who might not know enough about it. Just because in the US, also true tends to be associated with white supremacists. Not always, of course, not always, but here it's not as interchangeable as it might be like overseas so i tend to use heathen or norse pagan more not so much also true because they have rules and shit and i don't like rules i live in a pretty liberal area in the middle of iowa which is just a lot of corn and a lot of conservatives which is fine it's interesting being non-binary 
I kind of identify myself um, personally. I'd probably say more heathen or like my niece asks. She's four, so I'm like, I'm a witch, which isn't necessarily untrue. So I do tend to tailor how I explain it to people, depending on who it is. Also because in our area, we have an unacknowledged white supremacist issue. Ew. I, I definitely identify heathen, sometimes heathen witch TM. It's kind of because I was, I've identified as witch for so long that it kind of just melded into it. Usually it's heathen witch or heathen or witch, depending on who I'm talking with. I steer away from Asatru for the same reason. It just, it has such a connotation in our country that it's like, eh. And again, like Astrid said too, they have rules and stuff. No. No. Rules are dumb. <laughs> right. No, like, nah. Nah, mm. bro. Heathen discourse. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like identifying with insults, so I call myself quite literally a dirty heathen and a filthy eclectic. And we're going to get into eclectic in a few minutes. Astrid has great explanations for all of those things. That's my outlook. I like identifying with insults because you can't hurt me if I called, it, called myself that first. And I love that. I love that you lean so hard into like filthy heathen and dirty eclectic or wait, it was the other way around, wasn't it? Both work. <laughs> Both are valid. Yeah. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah, no, I'm all that. in. I just all in all the time. <laughs> um, we also have soft versus hard polytheism. So essentially soft polytheism is about seeing the gods as archetypes. Maybe that they're all like every god that has a similar qualities is in fact the same god potentially. So you have like um, Zeus, Jupiter, Thor could potentially be one god, or you see them more as kind of like soft archetypes. So it's more Jungian in that kind of respect. Um, I think all of us are hard polytheists or stray the line between soft and hard uh, in terms of we see the gods as very real, individualized beings with agency that impact our world in a very real way. I'd say we're all hard polytheists from what I know. I think so, yeah. Hard enough. <laughs> That's what you said. You know how, like, it's hard all... enough. <laughs> See, I'm thinking like, you know this, how you measure like the softness or hardness of cheese? That's, <laughs> that's how I'm visualizing this scale. Oh my god. Like, I am not brie, I'm maybe closer to like cheddar, you know? That's wonderful, <laughs> and that's definitely not where my mind went. <laughs> I mean, mine neither, but cheese is more uh, appropriate. <laughs> I mean, cheese is delicious. See, and my new agey hippie kind of brain went to, oh, the most scale. <laughs> <laughs> so now Astrid's going to go into terms that I still every so often get a little confused about. <laughs> so I will be taking notes again, because for some reason, my brain always mixes up two of them. So, go ahead, Astrid. All right, so I'm going to be covering Reconstruction versus Revivalist versus Eclectic. And also a fun um, slang term that we will get to. So these terms get thrown around a lot in heathen discourse and conversation. And a lot of us, like even me doing research on how to actually define these things, I think I've even been using them wrong or I don't fall into the categories necessarily that I thought I did. So it's been <laughs> it's been a journey. So reconstruction is basically using sources like history, 
archaeology, poetry, even stuff like folk tales to create a foundation for a modern spiritual practice based in the culture it came from. So using the Eddas, using archaeological finds to kind of recreate that context so that we understand that context and where those spiritual practices grew out of. Recons can get a bad name. A lot of them think that only historical evidence should be followed and there's no room for interpretation or change. And um, it kind of toes the line between, oh, you just had an earthquake? Oh shit, I'm recording. Yeah. Oh well, it's fine. Cut. Um, I can cut it out, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I just checked. <laughs> oh dang. Weird. Okay. It's super that fun. I'm having a great time. But it was only a 4 1. That's yeah. not bad. <laughs> Fucking California girl thing. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the ground moves. I fall on a fault line. I mean, for us it is. I'm not far from a fault line. All right. So now that now that the the literal earth has decided to interrupt <laughs> me. <laughs> Shit. I lost my spot. <laughs> okay. So yeah, he that like recons get a bad name. Um it kind of toes the line between reconstruction and reenacting sometimes. But like reconstructionist pagans and heathens are not the same as reenactors. They don't try to recreate old Norse and Germanic culture along with the spiritual practices, although some do, but that's not the same thing. Um <laughs> Understanding the context of practice comes from, what values and meanings um, its root culture gives it is very important to Reconstructionism, but not all of it's good by today's standards. There's a lot of holes in the sources, so there's always some interpretation involved when you're a Reconstructionist. I tend to consider myself a recon heathen, to a degree at least, but I'm not going to cherry pick sources to say like, this is the right and only way to be a heathen because that's just not how it works. And like, as we said in episode zero, a little bit, Old Norse and Germanic culture is not modern culture. They had slavery. They had really shitty gender roles in some spots. They didn't have modern medicine. Yeah, Scandinavians bathed more than everybody else did at the time, but they still didn't know about like germs and shit. So I don't want to go back to that. <laughs> we don't need to go back to that. But uh, the other one, um, revivalism is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Um, reviving Old Norse religious practices and adapting them to modern life. Um, I think technically that most of the Reconstructionists I know fall more under a revivalist definition because they don't try and LARP rituals and culture from 700 Scandinavia because there were some pretty shitty parts that we don't like that don't apply to us now. But one of the most succinct and best ways I've heard recons and revivalists compared is from a website called Scald's Keep. And uh, our healthy reconstruction accounts for the needs of modern people and ethics of our modern times, while healthy revivalism is honest about new material. Neither way is an incorrect approach to Norse pagan heathenry. So revivalists tend to have a lot more interpretation involved Recons try to stay more focused on the historical stuff. I feel like a lot of people are somewhere in the middle between those two. And um, I think I might be more revivalist than recon. I don't know. That's kind of a hard, uh, it's a hard line because you can't fully be recon because there are so many blanks left to fill in. Even this like staunchest recon has to incorporate some revivalism. And part of that is just a function of the time we live in. So one of the examples I like to use between recon and revival is that in Old Norse practice, if, for example, 
water from a stream was required, a recon would make it a priority to find a stream and gather water, whereas a revivalist will go, yeah, the water coming out of my tap is just as good, because yeah, that's how water moves in the modern world, therefore moving water is still valid and sacred. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, like, kind of with everything in heathenry, it's a spectrum. Like, there's hard reconstructionists, and then there's more that are kind of closer to more revivalist end of reconstruction. So I think more people are drifting that way now because they're seeing, oh yeah, modern plumbing is great. <laughs> but uh that yeah. lends to the the germs and shit. Literally, modern plumbing <laughs> was not a thing back in seven hundred Scandinavia. No. You like pooped in a hole. Hard pass. Yeah, Thanks. right? <laughs> <laughs> we don't need that. We don't need don't... that part. We don't need that part anymore. It's okay. I don't want a poop log. Yeah, <laughs> see, parts of it are cool. Parts of it are really, really cool. That's why reconstruction is important too. But like, mm-hmm. we don't need all of it. It's okay. I think I think it might be easier if we weren't heathen to be recon. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> all right, so eclectic heathenry, basically mixing heathen practice with any other type of practice that isn't quote-unquote historical or Norse Germanic makes you an eclectic heathen. Um, People who mix more witchcrafty practice with heathenry or other traditions like Celtic or Egyptian or Greek or whatever else, they often take the term eclectic because they feel like it applies a little bit better to the broad spectrum of stuff that they pull from for their spiritual practices. Again, like Sif said, a lot of these labels are descriptive, not prescriptive. So you just kind of then the last one we have is a boomer heathenry. This one's a spicy one. Uh, <laughs> it's a slang term referring to heathens who were doing heathen stuff in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s and never kind of grew past that point. Of course, not all heathens who are boomers are like that, but many of them are. And that kind of carries over into a lot of organizations that are still really big in heathenry um, where inclusivity isn't keeping up with the culture at large yet. More or less, boomer heathenry is heathenry that's about 10 to 20 years behind the curve when it comes to new information, new social norms, all that stuff. And unfortunately, a lot of the beginner books available fall into that category because they were published over a decade ago and were never updated to reflect social changes that have been made since then. So keep that in mind when you're reading some of those books. And we're going to go over vetting sources and stuff in a later episode, but boomer heathenry is a kind of a thing that a lot of inclusive heathens now are trying to change because our culture as heathens is so rooted in information that we got from people who were doing this in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it's just, there's good information there. Like they kind of helped build the foundation and the foundation is okay, but it needs major updating to build the house on top of it still. So we're working on that right now. As a community, I think. I mean, and even in the last 10 years, heathenry has changed exponentially to, like, for um, gender and LGBT social stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, even just looking mm, 10 years ago, like, when I first started in heathenry, nobody talked about Loki. Loki was a thing that you didn't, you didn't touch Loki with a 10-foot stick at a ritual event. Loki was not allowed. You didn't deal with them at all. And that's totally different now. Like, it blows my mind that there are still people who are like, Loki is, Loki is evil. 
Yeah, the truth just recently started allowing Loki worship at their rituals. I think it's only in the past, what, five years or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, if, if even I mean, that, I don't even know. Even the last 10 years with the changes, like in getting more inclusive and everything for the general heathen organizations. Before I started looking more into it in the last couple of years, that's one of the reasons I was so reluctant to look into heathenry, even though I've been interested in it for so long, just because I'm non-binary and pretty queer. And I was just like, that might not go over well. On this show, get out. (laughs) (laughs) We don't allow that here. It's astounding that, you know, the people who run these big uh, heathen communities and organizations are, they are so universalist and they are so inclusive as individual people, but their organization hasn't grown or changed enough yet to reflect that, like in the bylaws or their materials that they use and the resources they put out like it hasn't quite gotten there yet and that's sort of a boomer thing (laughs) i mean yeah and it's like when people are like oh i don't want to get political it's like well that's that's nice um but for me living is inherently political as a non-binary person so it's like mm-hmm. okay like i understand you don't want to get political so like can i trust that if i go to your event i'll be safe because if there's white supremacists there or something who aren't going to approve of me like they might want to hurt me yeah i mean and even though you can make the argument that like even in a public event like that nobody would you know deign to try anything physically to harm someone at an event like that with witnesses and all of that shit like someone would step in hopefully we hope but the fact is is that if you know someone is there who doesn't want you there whether they act on it or not that's going to affect your experience at that group or that event and that's automatically going to make you feel unsafe and like you don't want like they don't want you there even if it's only that one person and that's that's bullshit and we need to not let people in I I am rambling now. I lost my train of thought. That ramble actually works really well as the transition into the next one. Oh, so good. I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm going to be talking about two documents basically that a lot of times you'll hear in the communities being spoken about. Uh, so first is Declaration 127 that was written in 2017 based upon the principles of the Havamal stanza 127. If you know of another's evil or wickedness, speak up about it and don't give them any peace. Declaration 127 was aimed directly at the Asatru Folk Assembly because of their very vocal discriminatory practices. Uh, They are anti-trans, they are racist, they are sexist, they are anti-adoption, anti-LGBTQ. They are all about the purity of the quote-unquote white race and white family. Uh, So Declaration 127 declared that the organizations and the people who signed on to it would not promote, associate, or do business with the AFA or anyone associated with the AFA. And that was a great first step, but people realized that it was very one track. 
And in 2019 or 2020, Declaration of Deeds was written, and this calls out any form of discrimination in paganism at all. It made the point in its very first part, we are reconstructing the religion, not the flaws in their society. We are not our forebearers. We are not our ancestors. We are looking at the beliefs in the old gods, not in the beliefs of their societies. It calls out specifically discrimination based on race, ethnicity, country of origin, gender, sexual orientation, or ability. States that our deeds matter, and that is how we should be judged, not things outside of our control. In the show notes, there's a link to a video done by one of our favorite creators that was actually a compilation of people reciting a small part of the Declaration of Deeds as a huge show of support against discrimination. Okay. It's pretty great. Yeah, it was. It's a pretty great video. Yeah. The Declaration of Deeds was necessary because a lot of people, you know, signed Declaration 127 and then just stopped there. They're like, all right, we're not going to stand for the AFA. You know, their racist nonsense does not apply to us. We are not them. It was basically like blacklisting the AFA, which is good, but that's not enough. That's kind of where the Declaration of Deeds stepped in and we're like, well, uh, we need to go and explain why we don't like the AFA and say that just because you're not part of the AFA, that doesn't mean you're not also racist or bigoted or sexist or anti-trans or whatever. You can't just denounce the AFA and take your, you know, take your name off their, their mailing list, so to speak, and then all of a sudden you're good. You have to go farther than that because your actions speak louder than words. I think Astrid just said it all. Good. I think the rest of us are completely dumbfounded. Yeah. (laughs) But in a good way. No, in a good way. Because we are, we are really. What are you talking about? Sorry. How dare you have a good explanation? We're all really passionate about that because of the fact that we are all in some way, shape or form part of what's being protected by Declaration of Deeds. Part of the reasons why we're doing this podcast, because we are voices that have been discriminated against and are kind of hidden because of that. Astrid put it pretty damn well. Why, thank you. I've had coffee today. (laughs) Caffeine is, caffeine is a weirdo's best friend. It is. (laughs) Put that on a shirt. Somebody gif it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked a bit about what heathenry is. How do you do it? How do you do the thing? So heathenry is the religion of homework. It's There's a lot to read. There's a lot to look into. And honestly, accessing the sources can have a pretty substantial barrier for a lot of people, including paywalls or just... Um, extremely beefy books that are written like textbooks which isn't necessarily the best for everyone fortunately most of the lore and stuff um is public domain now and can be found for free online legally maybe not in the best translations but it is there and so like some places to look for stuff that would be more affordable would be like jstor like germanicmythology.com. Um, they have like the Poetic Edda and Valespa, the Vulvus Prophecy. Archive.org has a wonderful selection of Norse lore. 
Ragweed Forge has the rune poems, which is really great. We're learning the runes. You can pick up various rune books and whatnot specifically for it, but some of them can be pretty problematic. And if you don't want to have to discern through your learning, um, the jumping into the poems is one of the best ways. There's an Icelandic saga database. So local libraries often have a lot of decent stuff, especially because Norse mythology is often used in classrooms and whatever. So yes, prep the libraries, Theo. <laughs> hype, um, hype the libraries. Sorry. No, you're totally fine. So your local library will often have a lot of decent stuff. Um, and if they don't have what you're looking for, a lot of libraries will do an interlibrary loan for you. So if they don't carry the book you want, you can request it and they can get it for you. We're going to have a plethora of websites for really good resources in the description. And on that note, don't feel like you need to read all of the books immediately all at once. I know it can be really intimidating because there are so many people out there who seem so well read that are giant nerds and can tell you exactly what saga or what stanza of the Havamal this specific line comes from. Yeah, you don't have to be them. And I can relate to that really heavily because um, I have like, I have a lot of issues just sitting down and reading a bunch of stuff. And so like I'm definitely not the person that's like, oh yes, that's from this exact thing. This is Havamal stanza 115. Like I cannot do that. You don't have to. Also another thing, like on that note, like yeah, like researching and reading is really wonderful and you should do that but you are going to start experiencing things before you're 100% well researched I'm doing air quotes right now it's definitely a process like you don't have to get to point x y or z before you can experience certain things a couple lower cost payment options um like if people have 10 bucks a month to throw at something. There, one is Scribed, which has a lot of amazing book options. Another is like Kindle Unlimited. They're getting better at what they have on there. Yeah, I, I second, second Scribd. Is it Scribd or Scribd? I don't know. Whichever it is, it's a godsend. I, it is one of the only things I pay for. They have a ton of stuff on there. It's not just the books or audiobooks. It's like they have pdfs of a lot of academic and scholarly stuff too that you can find through the app that you have access to like it's it's well worth at least yeah. the free trial and a lot of like the the poetic edda the prose edda a lot of that stuff is well past copyright date a lot of those you can find online for free anywhere all the time and those are going to be like your super basic heathen resources right there. And if you find that you aren't vibing with a translation, don't worry. There's a million translations. Some of them are from the 30s and oh, yeah. are hard to read. Some of them are more recent and are easy to read. In fact, you should probably be reading multiple translations because connotations change, words change. I mean, and if someone's just wanting to dip their toes in, I feel like I could safely recommend, um, like, Neil Gaiman's Norse, is it Norse Gods? Norse Mythology. Norse Mythology. But it's definitely an easy read, it, and you can you can just yeah. glide through it and get a pretty good idea. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Because it's Neil Gaiman. Everybody loves Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And also, it's widely available. Mm -hmm. Besides that one, I would say Jackson Crawford does really great translations. 
He's probably the most easier to, to manage. With Jackson Crawford, yeah. he's also available on audiobook, and he actually does the narration of his own books. So having the author being the narrator often helps. And he, he reads them in Old Norse and then his translation. So there is that. And Old Norse is just cool to listen to. Like, my mouth doesn't make those sounds well, because I'm an American, and we don't, rolled ours, I we don't do. roll our R's. <laughs> yeah, Crawford is great. Like, he's, he's a linguist, so he's coming at things from just a linguistic standpoint, which is great if you're looking at a translation. And he does all of the translating in a way that's very accessible. Like Jay said, it's really easy to understand and follow. And um, you can buy them at Barnes and Noble. Because, yeah, like the lore is how we know what Norse heathenry was like. And because, you know, like as Sif said earlier, like the practice died out. So we don't have a continuous line. Like we, we just kind of have to take bits and pieces where we can find it to see what it would have looked like back in the day. Yeah, so if like you are interested in yep. being a heathen or think it's cool in mythology, we use the lore, which is the poetic edda and the prose edda. Uh, to kind of get an idea about what the gods were like, or at least how they were seen by specifically Snorri in the prose edda uh, around-ish, maybe like give or take a few hundred years um, <laughs> uh, at the time. So it kind of gives you a flavour for what their personalities were like. So yeah, if you don't want to stray too far into mythic literalism, it's a nice foundation, a nice starting point to kind of become familiar with the gods. Um, and how they interact with each other. And so that's why we always recommend Prose and Poetic Edda. Those are your real kind of like, they're the real bread and butter of heathenry. Um, and you really do pick up and build your practice from there. So that's why you constantly see people recommending these early medieval texts. <laughs> also recommend the sagas, Sagas of the Icelanders. Very good. Has the saga of Eric the Red, which is fantastic. Sagas are really good. They sound really like academic and scary, but they're honestly kind of badass to read through. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, they're fun, and a lot of them are short. That's a lot of times I'll mm -hmm. actually tell people start with a saga so you can get used to the language too. You can get used to it's not going to be modern English. Yeah. yeah, they're like straight up adventure stories. It's effectively like the ancient version of a fucking Story. comic book. Exactly. It's awesome. There's revenge and family feuds. All adventure all the time. Read a saga. Mm -hmm. Sorcery, magic, swords. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Taxes. <laughs> yeah, recom I recommend Saga of Rolf Cracky. It's probably my favorite. It's got werebears in it. Case closed. It wins. It wins. Cool. So we've talked a little bit, a lot, about what heathenry is, what it can be, how to learn about it. Let's take a quick fun second to talk about what heathens actually do. We do have a full episode coming on altars. I think we have one on actual practice coming too. This is just going to be real brief, real fun. Give you a little inspiration to get yourself started. Most of heathenry, when you think about the practice, like an altar or an altar space, not required, but they are really cool. They're real pretty. I really like them. Everyone should have them. Some of the basics for an altar are things like an altar cloth, because when you're burning candles, they, they drip wax. <laughs> and if you have a cloth, it's much easier to deal with that fallout versus scraping it off of your wooden shelves or whatever else. Candles are a really common one on altars. LED candles are valid. If you can't have fires, it's fine. <laughs> Incense is a super common one. 
something to burn your incense in, depending on if you prefer sticks or loose incense or cone incense. For heathens, you're typically going to want something like a bowl or a cup to leave your offerings in, because when you like feed a friend, you don't just put it on the table, you put it in a container, you know? Be polite. <laughs> Art is super cool. For me, the most important thing about an altar is that it's authentic to you. So things that remind you of your gods, that remind you of your land rights or your veter, things that feel authentic. So if your space is really, my space is really jumbled. I have a lot of stuff. I like it that way. So my altar is not minimalist. And that's fine because it's authentic to me. If you're a minimalist person and you want a cutesy little minimalist altar, fantastic. Perfect. As long as your altar matches your vibe, you're doing it right. Is my hot take for the week. It's a mm -hmm. good take. The other thing that's super cool, thank you, internet, is are things like digital altars. So I've seen Discord servers, Minecraft uh, altars, uh, Google Slide altars, because they're things that you can still look at and honor your gods through, and they're saved online. I've actually seen, I've seen Animal Crossing mm -hmm. altars. Mm -hmm. What? Which is really cool. Yeah. And those work really well oh, for yeah. people who can't have physical altars it for space reasons or privacy reasons you can hide it you just like x out <laughs> you just hide it <laughs> super great uh the other thing that is super fun is that altars can be made to be as big or as discreet as you want for example one of my altars is an entire bookshelf but i also have an altar that fits on the base of the vanity mirror but i've seen people with things like altoid tin altars I know of someone who has a big, like, crate that all of their altar supplies goes into, hides under the bed when not in use. Keeping things in, like, the top drawer of a dresser is super effective if you need to be able to hide or put away, like, if you have kittens or something. If you need to be able to put your altar away, that's all super valid, too. It's all about making it work in your space. Or lack of space. <laughs> yeah, I think Whatever works. <laughs> Like, when I was a lot younger, like, I my altar went into, like, a, um, oh god, a cigar box, if you know what I'm talking about. It's it's basically just a little... Millennials will um, understand. Yeah. Um, it went into, like, a little cigar box at the bottom of my backpack. Because my parents could not see it. I also know people that, like, have just made their own false bottoms for dresser drawers and put stuff in there. They've even one of the coolest pocket altars I've ever seen was in a pocket watch. That's cool. Oh, People get so creative yeah. with this stuff. Cool. That is so, so cool. creative. I mean, in, like an altar doesn't need to be, you know, the huge drippy candles and like the smoky incense and all of these things. If you live in a space where public space or you share a space with someone or you have kids or whatever you can make it a space that works for you so you can make it look just like a neat little shelf that's just got a cool a bunch of cool shit on it it doesn't have to be smoky incense and big candles and idols and all of this stuff it can be a couple little things like seashells or cool rocks you like shiny rocks another really fun way to incorporate altar space is to incorporate it with uh, ancestor altars. So most people have like a shelf with pictures of their family. Shuck a raven rock in there, and now it's a little bit more of an altar space. It's already honoring your ancestors. So adding little things, little trinkets, throwing a candle in there is a really easy way to hide it yeah. in plain sight. 
I've even known people that use stuffed animals. Like, you know, if they had, like, Freya, they'd get, like, a little cat stuffed animal. Or um, Odin would be, like, an, an owl? I don't know. Whatever they vibed with. And then they could even keep it on their bed or on a bookshelf. And it just it just looks like they have a stuffed animal collection. I've seen, and we all know this person I'm talking about, and they'll hear this, who actually crochets basically stuffed animals. Mm. But they've got a pocket in there, too, so you can use them for yeah. offerings. That's so cool. Super easy way of hiding things. Yeah, they've got little pockets in them. Mm -hmm. It's great. So you can use them as a spot to be able to do your offerings and be really discreet about it. Yeah. I guess on the subject of like discreet offerings, although I know we're going to be talking about this in a future episode. So if you have, if you can't have a massive altar uh, due to being in the broom closet, just a glass of water is more than enough. Definitely. And, you know... Since we're talking about altars, I think Kenna said it earlier, but it's if having an altar is going to put someone in a not safe situation, then just don't have one. It's totally okay. Oh, yeah. Not have an yeah, altar. Not having an altar sometimes doesn't, uh, it just doesn't work for you in like a designated altar space. And that's okay. You can do, you can set something out. Like if you're, a lot of people do um, stuff in their kitchen. Like if you're cooking and cooking is part of your your practice or you're making something in your kitchen for a specific reason or whatever, you can always set a little cup of it to the side and use that as your offering while you're cooking and then just either dump it outside, dump it in the drain, you know, whatever it's valid. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to have stuff that you use only for ritual or use or for spiritual use on your altar that you can't also use every day. Like you don't have to separate those two things. It's okay to use wooden spoons that you cook with in magical practice if that's what you use them for. It's okay. No one's going to yell at you and tell you you're doing it wrong. Well, some people will, but those people are assholes and you don't need them anyway. I was going to say that's what I do. Like, I don't differentiate mm -hmm. my supplies. And if you yeah. are coming into heathenry or even witchcraft at this point and you are new and you are worried that in some way... Your lack of altar, your lack of food offering, your lack of ability to take part in those things is going to be a hindrance to you. Don't. There is no, there is no anger from our gods in that way. Gods are fucking ancient. We have been dealing with our human shenanigans for literal centuries. We do not rely on, on grain, on food, on any of that to connect with us. It's cool. It's helpful. It's great to be able to give what you can. But it is never, no one loses pagan points for not being able to make an offering. Not being able to set Wait, up we an get altar. points? <laughs> Still a fine pagan, we get I points? promise. <laughs> I got coupons. Yeah, you have to fill your pagan punch card. <laughs> Membership card. When you fill your pagan punch card, and you get one divine Something. experience. That's how that works, right? The other thing on that is too, is you don't have to make an offering every day or every week, or every month, or on a specific moon, there is no checklist of you have to, no set schedule. Do it when you, it feels right to you. That's something a lot of people have come into it with that mindset of, oh my god, I've got to do an offering every single day, or I've got to do an offering on their specific day of the week, or I've got to do an offering every full moon, or yeah, no. You don't need to do an offering at any specific point. You don't need to do offerings, you know, until you feel comfortable. It's okay to take it slow. The gods understand. 
Also, they're like you know immortal, so all the time in the world on their side. And they also don't understand time in the human construct. Mm -hmm. So there is that too. What is time? Time is a soup. Exactly. Time is a weird <laughs> soup. Yep. Weird. <gasps> Oh, that quote becomes oh, better. No. <laughs> layers, there's layers now. There's so many layers. Layers to the soup. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're brand new, this is what will happen to you eventually. <laughs> you will say a sentence and you'll go, oh, wait, that's what, oh, weird soup with a Y. Oh, it becomes a thing. Oh my God. <laughs> it will happen to you. Cosmic soup. Oh, now I it's want soup. Damn it. This is, this is very professional heathenry happening here today. No fun, only pagan. Yes. Yeah. This is super professional. We are, in fact, the most. This is why we edit things. Oh, yeah. I want to yeah, keep this gonna in. Want, <laughs> you realize they're going to want this in. Oh, no. <laughs> we just went from an incredible actual conversation about the of not setting yourself up for failure by yeah. off by setting an offering schedule, and in one sentence. <laughs> oh, God. I think something that we actually can take from this crazy is don't feel like you have to take yourself so seriously. Oh no, heathenry is heathenry is very serious all the time. You learn anything from this podcast entirely <laughs> all the time, so forever. Serious. The most we all wear tweed jackets with like leather oh, elbows, jackets, and we all gatekeep turtlenecks. <laughs> yes, and turtlenecks. And turtlenecks. What do you mean? That's exactly how I'm dressed right now. <laughs> oh no! Dark academia. I'm definitely not wrapped in a spider web blanket right now. Oh, That's a vibe. Yeah, I'm totally not in pajamas <laughs> and crazy hair. Not at all. <laughs> oh, okay. Important note. When you throw offerings outside, if that is your chosen method of offering disposal, please make sure that it's, like, animal safe and not going to cause problems. Like, maybe don't put a bunch of salt outside in the dirt. That kind of fucks with the soil. Maybe don't pour alcohol directly onto the ground if it's, like, a large quantity because that can fuck with the soil. Um, it's totally valid to just chuck things in the trash if that's what's available to you. Just pour it down the drain. God's already took what they wanted out of it. You're just getting rid of the shell at this point. Just chuck it in the toilet. I don't care. Exactly. That's a question a lot of new heathens ask. It's like, how do you know? You know, when is the the key time to dispose? Um, I always say that when it's on the altar space, it's that sacred. As soon as it it's off, it's it's mundane. Right. So, and in, in terms of how long it stays on the altar, it. Depends. I mean, a couple of days, maybe, if it doesn't go moldy. Right. Yeah. I know for me, part of the reason I like leaving liquid offerings is, well, I'm kind of lazy. I can leave them there usually yeah. until they evaporate. Well, and, and so another thing, a question that I see come up a lot um, in a lot of servers I'm in is, what do you do with your offering once you're done? Like, is it okay to consume it? Do you throw it away? I do know that traditionally in heathen norse heathenry it's um not consumed but personally i would say like throw it away i mean unless it's your upg that it's okay that you eat it or you know if you actually just can't afford to throw it away the gods do not want you yeah the gods don't want you to put yourself in like For a sure. dire situation to give them an offering absolutely i hot take there it's not a it's not a hot take it's like a lukewarm take is that if what is it's your business you and your god's business 
if you had a conversation with Poseidon and Poseidon said, yeah, no, you're good, think the thing, not my business. If you're looking for how to start out, typically in heathenry you don't eat the offering, that doesn't mean you can't do it at all. And that's really just coming into the idea that when you give something to the gods, it's kind of you're sacrificing something yourself, whether that be, you know, a coffee or time it took to write up a poem and then burnt it or anything like that. So it's there is an element of a sacrifice to an offering. But again, no hard and fast rule. Woo! No dogma. Um, so yeah, do what you can. No rules! No, rules. no hierarchy. <laughs> okay. What was everybody's first heathen source that they started with? I'm going to embarrass myself. Are you sure you want that answer? Yes. Yes. Bring the cringe. I did find Wisdom of Odin pretty early, which was cringe. Oof. And Freya Norling, unfortunately, because I was desperate for Scandinavian witchcraft. So a lot of information there was kind of dogmatic. It was, this is the way things are done. I didn't vibe with that. I don't like being told what to do. Like that's a pretty standard across the board thing with most heathens is that either, unless you're a Theod and then you love having people tell you what to do, but most heathens are like, you can't, no, don't, don't, you don't, you're not the boss of me. Like that's a thing in heathenry. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> you're doing it wrong and you can't tell me how to do it. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's the worst part about a religion with no. I literally, like, you can be, everyone can be both right and wrong at all times. Because what's right for me isn't inherently going to be right for Astrid. But both of our practices can be 100% correct. Mind blown. <laughs> I kind of hate it. It's, mm. it's good and, it's good and bad. Like, there's, it's, it's mostly good. But, like, it's also, it can get kind of tricky when you're meeting with other heathens when there's not a pandemic oh on. Uh, that... <laughs> You know, you're trying to do group rituals or something like that. There has to be some rules. Okay, there's not no rules. There there's some rules. rules. For consistency's sake, like you try to adjust things. Like I've adjusted my practice to be in group ritual occasionally because if I'm not the one running the ritual, I still want to be respectful of whoever is running the ritual and how they're doing things. Because sometimes it may not be exactly what I do at home, but I can still participate and still have an experience there. It's totally fine. There is definitely a period of adjustment required, especially if you're coming from a dogmatic religion like Christianity, where it is both incredibly liberating to have no set and hard rules, but also incredibly intimidating because you effectively have to build your own practice. And that's mm -hmm. fun and scary. It's a lot of fucking around and finding out because you're probably not going to nail it the first time. There are going to be adjustments made first ritual is probably going to look nothing like your current ritual because you're finding the things that work oh, yeah. for you and making adjustments like i look back at the the rituals that i used to do like when i was a teenager when i was still kind of in the wicca general pagan early 2000s sort of astrid and uh <laughs> you know the whole casting the circle and calling elements and all of those things was still very much part of my practice back then. And then it sort of didn't like compared to what I do now, it's totally different now. And it is a lot of trial and error and adjusting and figuring out what works best for you. And it's great. And it's also frustrating because there is no one to go to that's like going to tell you exactly what you did wrong or what not, what's not working. They can go and it, yeah, it's a lot of fuck around and find out. The curse of heathen <laughs> teachers is that they will constantly, if you ask 
one heathen how to do a thing, you're going to get three or four answers because this source says this, but from here we know this, and from another source we know something else. So you can really do whatever you want. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Damn you, Snorri. Snorri. Right. <laughs> Consistency, oh, I love conversations like this. I love that we can do this. <laughs> I really hope everyone out listening likes it as much as we do. <laughs> This is the best the podcast will be. <laughs> Expect nothing past this yeah, level of perfection. <laughs> yep, we're done. We have no nothing else to do. Podcast has ended. <laughs> Not likely. <laughs> episode one. Oh. One and a half episodes. We're done. <laughs> yeah, I think my my uh, start was Wisdom of Odin. Well, it was more. I was really into Greek mythology when I was like eight, and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool." And then did some more research, had a little bit of a break, became a real ardent atheist, came back. Looked more into mythology again, specifically Norse, and thinking, okay, where does this fit in? Stumbled into the YouTube algorithm, which uh, recommended Wisdom of Odin, kind of backed out quite quickly and did some more research. I spent like three years researching. And then, yeah, so it was just, it was very much a, okay, a lot of sources are telling me very contradictory things. I didn't believe any gods, but now I feel like I do. Um, so let's just build up from nothing. And yes, and if you are a new a new heathen or skirting around the edge, of uh, paganism just just know that it is completely normal to feel overwhelmed and to think where the heck do i start uh, where do i begin how how does this fit into the modern day hopefully we answer some of those questions on this podcast hopefully and if not just let us know and we'll cover it but um you're not alone <laughs> oh no yeah not <laughs> that's totally normal like i've been doing this for 10 years as a heathen heathen and there are still times where i'm like i don't know what i'm doing what am i doing what is this and that's that's normal because we don't have all of the information there's not a blueprint for how to be a heathen because it was it died <laughs> it died and even when there was a blueprint it wasn't a blueprint it was kind of more like here's a guideline but the village next to you might have a different guideline yeah, the family over there just something completely different exactly variance between practice from person to person is historical this is what it's supposed to be it's never been one yes. thing all the way through for everybody Fucking the norse pantheon covered from like germany to northern sweden like there's no way north sweden's gonna be the same as south germany <laughs> Especially when there wasn't email. Yeah, they couldn't tweet about it. There were no, like, how-to TikToks. <laughs> there wasn't YouTube back then. <laughs> oh. I know. I got lucky with my first sources. I got really, really lucky with my first sources. I was immediately heated Ocean, uh, Ocean Keltoy and Wolf Dorad, thank the gods. I didn't even know who Wisdom of Odin was until I started hearing about it from them. But from Ocean and from Wolf, I started actually reading. And so my actual, my first actual like reading about it was Poetic Edda. <laughs> Total slogging. Slogging my way mm -hmm. through it. Uh, it was not easy. And I was like, what the hell? If this is what it is, I don't know if I want to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is totally valid, too. Oh, it is rough. Some of those, mm, especially depending on what translation you got, like it's it's a whole new language you have to learn, basically. Yeah, to be able to I was get like, what the hell? How am I going to? There's no way. Nope. I... <laughs> Throw the whole thing back. I'm done. But I stuck through it because, well, it is what I was looking for and it's 
as we all spoke about last episode, we all had that. Yep, this is home. As hard as it can be some days. Mm-hmm. And it will be, it will not be easy some days. Just remember that too. If you are a beginner, it won't always be easy. But mm-hmm. absolutely, there are tons of resources. Uh, and we will drop them in the description of this. We got you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we really hope that this helped you guys get a bit of a beginner's intro to what heathenry actually is and how to find some sources. Next episode, we're actually going to be talking about how to practice heathenry when you are in the broom closet and also on a budget. Because, like Kenneth said, you don't need to buy all the things. You don't need to have all the expensive, pretty stuff. It can be done on a budget. There, we'll also be able to give you guys a little peek into our own personal praxis. Because every so often, we do want to give you guys that little peek into ours. So grateful for all of you guys sticking through this. We are amazingly blown away by the fact that in the 26 hours since episode zero dropped, we've had over 200 views. It is absolutely crazy to us. It is. (laughs) So (laughs) it kind of blows us away. I think it's something like 12 or 11 five-star reviews, which is rad. Yeah. So let us know in the comments what you guys might want to hear, what you guys might want from episodes. Uh, We will definitely keep those in mind. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and get those notifications on YouTube. And don't forget to follow and rate us on Spotify. This has been episode one. We'll see you guys next week. And remember, keep heathenry weird. Bye.